Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host Georgia and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks and refer to the organisations in the show notes below. Welcome to episode three of Fight Science. Fight Science is a special segment that we do of the Conscious Combat Club podcast where we invite university researchers to come and explain their paper so that it makes much more sense than if you were reading just the abstract or even the entire paper. In today's episode, you're going to meet Janice Fung. Dr. Janice Fung is an assistant professor of psychology at California State University, San Marcos. Her research focuses on well-being outcomes for youth on the autism spectrum, and she's a Muay Thai practitioner. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the paper titled Promoting Executive Functioning in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder Through Mixed Martial Arts Training. Amazing. So, Janice, first questions first. Could you please explain this paper as if you're explaining it to a 14-year-old? Yes, I'd be happy to. So in this research study, I um, recruited some families who have kids on the autism spectrum. So they have autism spectrum disorder. And um, I was really interested in looking at executive functioning. Executive functioning um, are some cognitive skills that um, are actually one of the very last set of cognitive abilities that we develop. And so um, growing up, we have different sorts of cognitive abilities, but our executive functions, they're really focused on our prefrontal cortex, which is this front part of our brain. And that part actually doesn't get fully developed until you're about 25 years old. So it's the last part of your brain to become fully developed. And executive functioning, it has a lot of different sorts of skills. When we think about it, it's really talking about things like your ability to control your body, your ability to control your emotions, your ability to um, like think really fast and switch back and forth between different ideas. Um, and all of these skills are important because they help us achieve our goals and they help us um, kind of resist uh, impulses to be able to pursue those goals. So. We know that with kids on the autism spectrum, they tend to have a really hard time with their executive functioning. And martial arts is one way that might be able to help with executive functioning. And so in this research study, we recruited a sample of kids on the autism spectrum, and then we had them go through a mixed martial arts intervention. And here we had them practicing Um, mixed martial arts in a class with neurotypical kids uh, who did not have autism. And um, the the short result is by the end, we found that the kids who got the martial arts actually did see an improvement in their executive functioning compared to a control group of kids who also had autism but did not get the martial arts intervention. Which is incredible. I love this study. It's so well done. Would you add anything to that description if you were talking to an adult who, say, practices a mixed martial art? Yes. So with 
executive functioning. Um, again, it doesn't fully develop until we're around 25 years old, but it's also something that, um, it, like like many cognitive skills, it's a muscle. And so the more and more you use it and practice it, the more and more it becomes stronger. And what's really unique about um, training your executive functioning is that it has to be hard. It can't just be like you're running on a treadmill or you're riding a bike because your mind is not actively working. And so with executive functioning, it has to be cognitively challenging as well as physically challenging. And so that's what makes martial arts and executive function kind of fit very nicely hand in hand. We know it's not purely exercise and we know it's not purely cognitive. It's actually both. Is executive functioning discipline? Um, that's, one of the first things you think about when you think about martial arts, right? And so people say they put their kids in martial arts to become more disciplined. And so what does that mean, right? And I think it is. I think executive functioning is the ability to control your impulses, to control your emotions, especially if you're feeling really emotionally overwhelmed, taking a step back, taking some deep breaths, not doing anything that you're going to regret later, and being able to think about your um, your next steps for um, how you would like to act. So I think that's actually a really great description is to say executive functioning is discipline. It's behavioral discipline and it's emotional discipline as well. Mm. And I suppose encompasses some more. Maybe I would say like, seems to me like discipline is a part of executive functioning, but executive functioning maybe is a bigger term um, that also encompasses like forward planning um you know like if i do this technique then they're going to counter with this technique and then i'm going to respond with this technique and things like that would that be fair to say yes i think so and actually you've touched on um, a really um important component of executive functioning and that's called cognitive flexibility and cognitive flexibility is the ability to kind of like switch back and forth between different ideas and we usually uh in martial arts you have to be able to do it relatively quickly when you first start, it might take you a while, right? You're still figuring out your left and your right. But once you've really figured it out, you can cognitively, uh, you can be cognitively flexible relatively quickly and you can act and react to the actions of others relatively quickly. Okay, so I've got executive functioning and then discipline, which we might also call behavioral inhibition. I think that's the term in the paper. Then we've got cognitive flexibility, which is us like changing back and forward between like how to do the technique well, what's the opponent doing, what do I want to do next, what might they do next. And then the other component discussed in the paper is working memory. What's that? Yeah, so working memory, people often think of it as memory, um, and it is sort of like memory, but it is holding one thing in mind while also being able to mentally manipulate it. And so if I said, um, uh, here are all the ingredients to make these cookies, mm -hmm. I'm going to say them to you and you're going to put all the pieces together and measure and mix while I'm telling it to you. So that's your that's your working memory, working really, really hard to comprehend what I'm telling you while also doing it. Um, 
it's um, if I asked you to calculate an 18.5% tip on this amount, right? And your brain is holding one thing in place while also trying to manipulate it somehow. And again, as, as I'm explaining it, I can see your gears working because I'm sure you can imagine when you're doing martial arts, you're doing that as well, right? You're holding something in your mind while also trying to figure out what to do with it and you're mentally manipulating it at the same time. Yeah, I'm thinking about like, uh, pad holder holding the pads and saying like let's go jab cross hook roundhouse kick and in your brain you've got to go jab cross hook mm -hmm. roundhouse kick mm -hmm. absolutely and that incorporates a cognitive flexibility piece too because for example if you're holding for somebody who's orthodox your brain is accustomed to this but now you have somebody who's southpaw and your brain has to switch now to accommodate this new information so all of these different mm -hmm. types of executive functioning, um, you know, they're they're labeled differently, but it's really hard to tease them apart because they all really work together. And that's why uh, executive functioning is a relatively broad umbrella term that includes all these other different abilities within it. Amazing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me now. Hopefully that's making sense to um, folks who are listening, happy to answer questions about that. Maybe if we have comments on the video or anything of that nature. Um, what about, there's another term in this paper that I couldn't quite understand, which was restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior, or I think you have them as RRBs. Yes, and so um, autism spectrum disorder is diagnosed with two main criteria. The first are deficit in social communication. And so those I think are uh, much more apparent to most people. They are things like difficulty maintaining back and forth conversation, um, difficulty with eye contact, difficulty with reading facial expressions. And then the other diagnostic criteria is the presence of restricted and repetitive pattern of behavior or RRBs. And these are behaviors that um, may be um, motor behaviors. So for example, um, sometimes people may engage in self-stimulatory behaviors like hand flapping um, or looking at something out of the corner of their eye. Um, it can also include things like restricted interests. So sometimes uh, some people on the autism spectrum have um, very specific interests and um, which is sometimes quite a bit of a strain, right? Because if they're really, really interested in dinosaurs or really interested in history, they really become experts within that domain. Uh, but sometimes um, that um, interest may be too restricted that it might be difficult for that person to talk about other topics that are not interesting to them um, because they're only interested in that one topic. And so RRBs are a relatively broad category, but they do include border behaviors as well as um, uh, cognitive um, self-stimulatory behaviors. And so in this study, if you had somebody who was for example, like really, really interested in, like you said, dinosaurs, but not really, really interested in martial arts. How does that work? So, I mean, oftentimes with, with children, we do encourage them to expand on their interests. Um, it is a fact that sometimes if somebody's not interested in something, it's very hard to get them interested in it. Um, what we would often do is we would try to bridge interests 
in different ways. And so if we had a child that was really interested in dinosaurs, um, we might incorporate a game that was dinosaur related into the martial arts practice so that perhaps they can bridge those two interests. Um, but again, um, if that child was interested, we would even ask them to kind of bring in their own interests and try to see if we can follow their lead. Um, so it's certainly, um, of course, you've probably heard of the saying that you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, and that's because it is quite a bit of a broad spectrum. And so with RRBs, um, I've given you some examples, but it's certainly not everybody is going to like have it, that same type of rigidity. Uh, but again, some of those rigidity things are like uh, just uh, having really hard time um, with um, things that might be really novel or um, going out of routine. And, but, those things can also be supported with additional practice. And so with martial arts, there is quite a bit of a predictability with it. And so we actually found that um, once the kids figured out what the schedule was and what class felt like, they actually liked the routine. And in fact, that structure um, was actually really conducive to um, helping them fit in, helping them adjust once they got adjusted. It's so interesting how often structure comes up. Um, I've done some informal research asking people about why they think there's such a strong influence between martial arts and mental health. And structure was like a really common theme that came out um, in my analysis. And on this podcast, it comes up all the time. Um, and I always find it so interesting because it seems somewhat counterintuitive like we all want to grow up and not have to do what we're told to do and follow a routine but we really seem to crave it as human beings absolutely and that's especially the case with kids on the spectrum is um having that routine is actually very helpful it, it, it tends to um, ease a lot of anxiety about things that are unpredictable as well. But I think it's also uh, important to have a balance, right? Because if you're too rigid and too routine based, then you're not very adaptable. And so then that's like lacking of the flexibility piece. And so I think one really great thing about martial arts is that we teach routine, but we also teach what to do and how to adapt to when we don't have that routine. Yeah, love it. Um, this study uses the term MMA or mixed martial arts, but I think it uses the term maybe differently to what most listeners would have come to mind when they hear mixed martial arts. So in the context of this paper, what did it mean? So in the context of this paper, we really wanted to introduce um, more than one style of martial arts to the children. Um, because again, going back to that cognitive complexity piece, that really um, you have to make it challenging for people's ex um, executive functioning to be able to strengthen and develop. Mm -hmm. And so in this study, we started off with relatively simple combinations like a jab cross, um, starting off with kind of that, um, just a few steps here and there for the kids to be able to grasp that at the beginning. And then as it progressed, it was meant to become more cognitively complex. And so it was supposed to get harder and harder. And so we really wanted to incorporate um, some grappling and some basic uh, BJJ as well, because those are um, more minute and require more focused on 
smaller details. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's why in this study, we, we encompassed mixed martial arts because we wanted different types of styles because there were, they tap into different parts in terms of what we're asking them to do, right? With um, something like boxing, uh, those are very large motor movements. They're gross motor movements, right? Like punching, kicking, you're using your limbs versus something like jujitsu, it could be much smaller with just the, your fingers um, and with your um, the manipulation of your feet. And so uh, we really wanted to focus on both the gross motor component as well as the fine motor component. And how does it differ from like the way that MMA, I suppose, is taught in the more like combat sport oriented sense and the traditional martial arts sense? Um, I think that a lot of the studies to date uh, that have looked at executive functioning or um, just outcomes in general among children have really focused on the traditional martial arts. So um, there have been studies that have used karate um, as the most traditional of all, um, taekwondo, um, I think a couple of judo as well. Um, I think that those um, are strong in their own ways, but I think I I really wanted there to be a, a grappling component. Um, I felt that um, kids, again, on the spectrum, um, sometimes they really like sensory pressure. And so what really surprised us is that um, at first I actually thought the kids would be afraid of the grappling. They actually really, really enjoyed it. Um, and so um, some people on the autism spectrum, this falls under the RRB domain. Some people on the spectrum are hypersensitive to uh, sensory and others are hyposensitive. And some kids actually really like the pressure of uh, like rolling around with somebody. And so that was um, a surprising piece of it. Of, I didn't think the kids would enjoy the sensory pressure of grappling and they actually did. Um, and so I'm glad that we included it because I learned something about it. Um, but I think in the context of this, um, my, my main goal from moving away from the traditional martial art is I wanted them to be exposed to more than one art because some of the kids love the boxing, hated the grappling and vice versa. And so again, because every person is different, I thought it was really important to expose them to different styles because every person is going to have their preferences, what they like and what they don't like. Yes, I love that. I mean, that's such a common answer that I'll give to folks too when they're like, you know, I've experienced family violence, which is the better martial art for me to do. And it really depends because some mm -hmm. people feel much safer with the distance involved in striking. And for mm -hmm. some people, the striking feels too violent and they prefer a grappling art. And other people are like, no, don't come that close to me. That feels way more overwhelming than punching and kicking. And it's such a person by person um, type of decision. Absolutely. And the way that I think about um, like this MMA approach or this mixed style approach is um, I think as an instructor, you, it would be important to give the tools for a person's toolbox so they can stock up their toolbox and then they can choose what they would like to use. And I think that teaching them as as many different components as might possibly be useful for them and then letting them decide. 
So one of the things within that, within traditional martial arts, is that they do embed within them almost like discussions of themes. So like discipline and respect and humility are sometimes introduced as part of like a dojo kun or an oath, or there's like a discussion about that at the start of class. And I've had conversations actually on this podcast with Alex Channon, who's written about sport for development programs and how Um, We don't really know a great deal about whether or not the martial arts is the thing that causes the effect, if there's an effect, or if it's that that is essentially like a a gateway or a selling point to get kids and young people into programs. And then the actual thing that makes the difference is that they sit in a circle and they also have a conversation about their feelings or um, like about a broad topic like respect or discipline or whatever it might be so in this study was that included as part of the program was there like morals essentially taught like you would have in a traditional martial arts class we did we did have all those elements and that's just because that was part of the typically developing kids class as well Mm -hmm. and i think that any good martial arts school should always incorporate those different elements of the art part of the martial arts. And so we did all the stuff that all the other classes do. We always do lining up, bowing in, paying mm-hmm. respects. And then, um, you know, there's the um, addressing your instructor by their title. Uh, we also had a, a, bank, uh, a belting system to show hierarchy. And that was actually really helpful because um, sometimes kids on the spectrum are very visual. And so we could say, oh, and remember we had neurotypical kids who were assisting in the class. So we could say, you know, if you need help, look, he has a blue belt. He knows more than you do because he's been here longer. He's practiced longer. He's a, he's a role model for how you want to behave, right? And so um, I think all those elements have to be incorporated into it because otherwise it's just an exercise class you have to have those cultural elements of it to make it an art. Yes, let's talk about the, um, when they call it like peers, the uh, assistants within the program who helped. So was it a one-to-one ratio of um, kids who were participating in the program and then assistants? So the, the neurotypical kids were participating in the class as classmates, essentially. Um, and so we had um, the coach and assistant coaches, and then we had the class. And so um, we called them peer buddies. And so they were a part of the class. They participated in the class. We also used them for demos. And we also used them as like the peer leaders of, again, saying, look at how much that blue belt is controlling his body, right? Look how focused that green belt is. And so using those as role models, uh, peer role models is a, was a really good way for the, the kids on the spectrum to have somebody to emulate. Um, and so they participated in the class. They were our experts or our expert in the sense of expert who also took the class. Um, but I based this off of um, the, uh, this uh, social learning theory um, by Lev Vygotsky, where um, in, in learning, we learn from somebody who's more knowledgeable than we are. And so that person helps us kind of get us to the next level of understanding by scaffolding our own understanding. And so that was the role of the peer buddies. And 
what's nice about having peer buddies is that the kids could visually see who was more experienced than they were, but they're also still kids. And what's nice about that is it takes away from a power dynamic, whereas kids are used to adults telling them what to do. They're used to modeling after adults, but sometimes when you see a peer doing something, you're actually more motivated to emulate your peer than it is to emulate the teacher. Um, and so um, that was, I think, a really unique feature of our program was having these peer buddies. Um, and it was uh, really helped the kids become motivated to say, I, I have a white belt right now, but look at that person, I wanna be like them. Yes, I love that element of peer support, right? It's sometimes so hard to conceptualize the gap between yourself as a beginner and somebody who's been teaching the martial art for 20 years. They really seem like a different species of human being at that point. And the the journey from you know A to B then can seem so almost insurmountable. It's so nice to see someone who's, you know, just a couple of years ahead of you to see like, okay, that's where I could be. Yeah, and frankly, it was nice um, that it was a good opportunity for growth for the peer buddies as well, because they're mm -hmm. still kids also. And um, when you ask them to teach somebody how to do something, they became very humbled because they realized how hard it was, right? Um, I know how to throw a kick, but now you're asking me to show that person how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, that is much more challenging than being able to just do it myself. And so I, we saw a lot of growth in the peers as well. And so it's really nice because it, it it's humbling, but it also helps them grow as martial artists themselves. Because you don't really know what you know until you're able to teach it successfully to somebody else. 100%. Um, now this program was split into there was an intervention group and there was a control group mm -hmm. um and the control group were on a wait list and to my knowledge there was a, a mix of girls and boys on the control group but the intervention group was only boys um what influence do you think that that had on the outcomes of the research and also why do you think that was um so we did have a couple of girls enrolled in the martial arts group but they ended up dropping out um, yeah, uh, and um, for the sake of the analyses also, we, um, it, in general, autism is more commonly diagnosed among boys than girls. Um, there's also different theories about why that might be. It might be a misdiagnosis issue. It might be a prevalent issue. Um, there's still muddiness around there. Um, but I also think that um, it's martial arts is a little bit stereotypically male. And um, I can't help but wonder if, I mean, we, we did have some girls show interest at stay after the program was over. So we had some girls from the control group who ended up continuing the program when they were allowed into it, which was great. Um, but in general, it was still majority boys. And um, I think that there is still quite a bit of gender stereotyping within the martial arts world. And um, we tried our best to try to, um, encourage more girls to be in the program. Um, but I think that there is still quite a bit of um, resistance to that in terms of traditional gender roles. Um, there could also, it could also be a parent issue where maybe parents are afraid that their girls will get hurt in martial arts. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've heard of, of that as well. Um, but 
we do see more and more women and girls getting involved in martial arts. So I'm hoping that the the tide has begun to change on that. Yeah, I think that you're very spot on there. And all of those things are very real in the world that we still live in today. Um, I wonder if uh, like the facilitators, particularly like the head instructor and the assistant instructors, were there women in the in the instructing team? We had an assistant um, that was a woman um, and some of the peers were also girls as well. Um, but again, with the kids on the autism spectrum, it's hard because autism again is more common among boys and girls anyway. And I'm curious if I did um, a dance program for autism, I'd still probably get a good amount of boys relative to girls, but mm -hmm. it might be a little bit more balanced. Yeah, yeah, certainly a lot of factors to consider. I hope in the future we can um, maybe replicate the study in a group of girls. Is there plans to do that? Uh, not presently, but it's certainly an interest of mine. Um, I'd love to be able to look more into it. Um, finding girls on the autism spectrum is a little bit more challenging, um, but I think if that was the focus of the program and the focus of um, a research study that would be really, really novel and certainly untapped and certainly really valuable too for girls to be able to um, gain that confidence and to um, to build those, uh, especially those self-defense skills. 100%. Um, I'm just thinking out loud too. I'm wondering if the study design would stay fairly consistent if you were to replicate it in adults? Because I know that a lot of women are diagnosed later in life. Um, so what do you think off the top of your head without like really sitting down and planning it, would the program run kind of similarly if you were going to run it for adults? I think the hardest part that one would, well, the hardest part with kids is that, um, Sometimes kids are not intrinsically motivated to participate, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you did it with adults, then you would get rid of that problem because adults sign up for things um, and consent to things on their own. And so I think you would certainly have a lot more interest than possibly kids who maybe are doing it because their parents are making them do it or making them try it out. Um, so that's a positive thing. Um, I think in terms of the program being run, um, I still think having... Um, peers to support would be really, really important because I think that is how martial arts should work anyway, right? Again, is with that scaffolding of a more knowledgeable other, that's how you learn and develop the most. You can't have a bunch of beginners leading one another. It, it, it's much harder to do. We all grow together. Um, I, think, I think it's feasible. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely feasible. In fact, anything you do with um, that you can manage to pull off with kids is always going to be easier when you try to pull it off with adults, purely just because adults are are going to want to do it. The, the ones who sign up are going to be motivated to do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. very interesting food for thought. Just let that sort of bubble away in the back of my brain. Um, but coming back to this paper, and I suppose kind of relevant to that, but if... Um, can organizations take anything away from this paper? Maybe not to run like a dedicated 13-week, twice-a-week program, um, which was the dosage in this uh, study, but if they're thinking about the fact that 
I can, can almost guarantee that most gym owners will have some kids on the spectrum in their classes and adults on the spectrum in their classes. So are there any takeaways from this study that people could implement? Yes, I would say the biggest thing is um, inclusion. And to remember that people on the autism spectrum are people. And um, if they want to do martial arts, if you're truly a real martial arts academy, a true martial arts school, um, it should be inclusive to everybody. And um, sometimes I hear from parents about how um, if their child's nonverbal or if their child has behavioral difficulties, that no programs would take them. And I find that completely the opposite of what martial arts is supposed to be. Um, martial arts is supposed to be there for people to better themselves. And anybody who wants to better themselves should be welcomed and included. And so it always breaks my heart when I hear parents say things like, oh, I wish I could sign my child up for karate, but no studio will accept him because of his behavioral difficulties or because he's nonverbal or whatever it may be. And that's always really disappointing because um, for me, you're a martial artist. It is your job to help other people learn to defend themselves and have that self-confidence that martial arts gives you. And so if I were to say anything about, um, I, I would encourage people to be open to all sorts of people coming into their school and being open to being flexible and trying to be accommodating to that person. Um, you know, when we first started, we had a child who wouldn't even come into the building because he just had so much social anxiety. And so then we got him into the building, but he stayed in the lobby and that went on for a couple of weeks. And then he sat over on the couches and watched for another couple of weeks. And then we got him to sit next to the mat, but not on the mat. And it took weeks and weeks and weeks until we actually got him even barely participating in class. And once we got him there, like we knew it was every single little step, we knew that we were getting him closer and closer. And um, this is like a feel good story was uh, we actually end up having a demo, a, a demonstration at a large event. And he, he demonstrated, he did a demo um, in front of, hundreds of people and this is a kid who couldn't even walk into the building at the beginning and so i would say that it you know regardless of whether it's adult or children uh, martial arts is supposed to be inclusive especially to people who are different um and so sometimes with um autistic adults there might be a little bit of oddity or quirkiness um and some people don't like they, they don't know how to accept that or to welcome that. Um, sometimes people may um, ask a lot of questions. But again, if you're a teacher, your job is to answer questions. Your job is to teach. So if people ask you questions, you should answer them and, and help them. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of patience that's required and a mental shifting of remembering that it's your responsibility to make your place inclusive so that those who need martial arts can come and get it. And in practice, what are some things that that could look like? So beyond like being more tolerant, being open to being inclusive and, and making things work, are there any like things people can do in terms of the way their dojo or that they're um, 
academy is set up or um, any other practical things that folks could do? Um, I would say that depending on the individual person, sometimes some people need to start off with more like one-on-one -on -one or more like private settings and then work their way over to a class setting. Sometimes it's hard for some individuals to work in larger groups. And so again, just trying to be flexible and offering that option. Um, and then frankly, managing the rest of the community managing the rest of the environment because sometimes a person who's different they're trying really hard to fit in but if your space doesn't allow like if you have people there who are not welcoming then that person's not going to feel welcomed and so i think it's calling out people who are sometimes there's there's gym bullies right mm -hmm gym bullies um, who pick on beginners or they pick on people who, um, or they avoid beginners completely. And so I think it's important for an instructor to really nip that in the butt to, to make sure that doesn't happen in, in their school. Yes, absolutely. I think we're seeing more of that now, particularly in larger cities where uh, people have options Right. It's no longer good enough to be like, oh, I'm the only person holding the martial arts knowledge in this town and therefore, you know, I can kind of get away with anything. Now people are really voting with their wallets and their time. Um, mm -hmm. And so there is a real need, you know, even from that perspective to think about the way that you run your academy, the culture that you're cultivating. And it really is something that you cultivate. You know, it's not just something that happens um, spontaneously. It's something that's very deliberate and includes you know, the people that you have conversations with and maybe discipline or that you would even ask to leave your academy in some occasions because you feel like you're losing one person. But the reality is there might be 10 people who started and never continued training because of that one individual. Absolutely. And really engaging um, the leaders within mm. your academy as well, because again, especially in traditional um, martial arts settings, um, it's, there's a hierarchy so we know who's higher ranked. We know who the experienced ones are. Those should be the leaders. And if you have some bad leaders, um, those people need to be called out. Yeah. Um, one thing that I forgot to circle around to before, I'm usually asking about implementation at the end, um, but was the, um, the class structure included like meditation and breathing exercises at the start. And I know there's commentary in the paper about how difficult it is to say, you know, was the improvement due to that or is it due to the martial arts? And, you know, there's no definitive way to say one or the other, but it seems like it might be a positive thing to include at the start of class. And it's not something that's commonly included in the more sport oriented martial arts classes, at least ones that I've done, you know, like if you're training boxing or Muay Thai or MMA or Jiu Jitsu, you're probably not doing something like that. So what did that look like uh, for folks who might want to implement something like that? Um, it could start off as something as simple as just breathing exercises to try to center um, what, uh, what we're doing for the day. Um, I think that it's a common practice among um, a lot of different people. Uh, autism types of therapies as well. It's just kind of reminding the child, like this is what we're focused on for today. And mm -hmm. that just kind of helps kind of reframe, um, especially if somebody may have some difficulty with focusing their attention. How does that work for kids who 
might be overwhelmed by breathing. And I don't want to make the assumption that that's common, but my experience in working with women who have experienced trauma is that there are a large portion of people who would rather do any other grounding strategy than focus on their breath because the breath is overwhelming. So are there any um, ways that the breath is introduced that maybe feels like a little bit less scary um, or are there any strategies for around that? I might be making an assumption. That's a great question. I've actually never thought about it. So I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm sure there are probably some people who would not prefer it. So I'm not sure. That's a great question. I think it's something to think about for the future. Yeah, interesting. Um, and even I'm thinking about it in terms of like um, invitational language is so important with for, for me in my work in introducing the breath um, that reminds people that they have an out if they're you know, feeling really heightened and overwhelmed as they go into that practice to think like, okay, it was a, an option, you know, but I had the choice to be able to choose to go and do something else. But I'm wondering how maybe invitational language could also be possibly difficult working with kids on the spectrum if they're like, well, I don't know, which should I choose? But maybe they feel better being told what to do in a martial arts setting. Did you have conversations around that? Did you use invitational language or was it more like, do this, do that, etc. Um, I would say it fit more in line with whenever there was em emotional regulation that was needed because somebody mm -hmm. felt overwhelmed or they felt frustrated as a way to kind of slow the heart rate down and to take a step away. Because sometimes when the techniques were getting really frustrating or they were getting more difficult and the kids couldn't do it, it was usually more of like, okay, let's focus on our breathing because I can see you're getting really upset right now. And so it was more about down-regulating the emotion than the other way around. And so I, I'm not sure um, if it would ever, or if, if it would like happen the other way around or, um, yeah, I'm not sure. But the only examples that I can think of is when they're just becoming like, like really anxious or really mm -hmm. overwhelmed and trying to down-regulate that so that they can um, be calm to like move on. Yeah. Yeah. Point. Is there anything else about this study um, or about your work in this area in general that you'd like to share with the incredible audience of martial artists that we have? Um, gosh, I think just that the martial arts community is um, such a great community and I think for me has changed my life has I've met people that I otherwise would not have met like you um, if it wasn't for martial arts. And um, I think that everybody deserves that chance to fit into a community like that. And so um, that's why I'm really motivated by the autism work is because um, people may be different, but that doesn't mean that they don't belong. And I think everybody should always feel a sense of belonging wherever they may whatever their interest may be, um, whether or not it be martial arts. But I I personally love martial arts because I, I think anybody who's um, in love with it knows how life-changing it is. And I, I like the idea of being able to give that to somebody else who may not otherwise have it. Yeah. Um, for folks who listen to this and are really inspired by your work and want to learn more about this research, is there anywhere that they should look? 
Um, we have an, an Instagram that's I'm not the best at being active about. Um, and uh, again, this is work that I'm continuing to pursue in the future. Um, we uh, had a bit of a, a dampening when it came to COVID, but I am anticipating kind of picking up this work again in the near future. So um, yeah, if um, people want to reach out or um, are interested, they can always follow. And I do have um, the intention to continue on with this work in the near future. Amazing. We'll put the link to that Instagram in the show notes below. Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. Nobody shapes me. If you'd like to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari the Saga. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I can see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me, they can't chronicle all my, all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers, cause I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me, cause I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really. You can't afford it, you cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?